Thanks for tuning in, guys. You're listening to Ace Comicals. I'm Greg Driver. I'm joined by Rahul Johnny and Leon Everett. Let's go! Welcome to episode 54 of Ace Comicals, and today we've got quite a bit to get through. Um, quite a few new comics that we've been reading in the sort of like first two, three weeks of the new year. Um, I'm joined by my usual co-host, I've got Leon. Hello. And Ray. Hey guys. So, since we recorded the last episode, I've been to the cinema a couple of times, because I have been to see Aquaman finally. And I've been to see Bumblebee, which is the first Transformers film I can talk positively about. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, have either of you guys seen these films yet? I've seen Aquaman, but I have not seen Bumblebee yet. Though I do want to try and catch it in the next week before it disappears. Yeah, I haven't seen either of them, but I'd also like to see both of them, I think. Yeah, they're both both pretty fun. Um, I I think I like Bumblebee better out of the two. But it's the first Transformers film that I can actually talk positively about and say that I actually sat and enjoyed. Um, because anybody who has... I, I might have mentioned... Have I mentioned it before on this show? About my what? aversion to the Michael Bay Transformers movies. I'm sure it's come up. Um, yeah, yeah, I was going to say. It, I don't remember an instance, but I'm pretty sure it has come up. Yeah. It must have done. Yeah. it's It's a well-known fact, anyway, for anybody who knows me. And... I'm just at a loss for why they couldn't have done this film from the beginning. Because if they had only, like, what was stopping them? You know? Because well, this, you know this, sh- this is what it should have been from the start. But and what what is this? What is this? What What, what is, is Bumblebee? What is Bumblebee? Okay, so it's... Why is it different from the others without going into deep plot? Um, Because y- you actually empathize with the human characters and they're not just there to for the sake of being there and there's you know the characters are like fleshed out and everything they're not just there as eye candy or stupid plot devices or whatever they were used whatever they were in the michael bay films um and they're actually and a prequel, yeah. right yeah it's a prequel but it's also like it's been done in such a way i think it's quite sly because it wouldn't have to be a prequel and it could it could they could do their own franchise off this and take it in a whole new direction because even as a prequel it doesn't massively work um because because there's there's inconsistencies like and i think they've done that on purpose because it's a prequel but at the same time it it doesn't have to be a prequel so but it's just really good. Um, and, and it's set in the 80s, right? It is set in the 80s, yes. <laughs> and the designs of the actual Transformers are way better and way closer to what I feel they should be and what what other people, like, if you look at a Transformers toy or if you look at designs of Transformers in other media versus the designs in the Michael Bay films, they just... They actually these these ones in this in this in this Bumblebee film actually look closer to what they should look like as far as I'm concerned as a Transformers fan they actually look better and more um more agreeable like you can actually 
because they because they look a little more human like the toys do they've got faces and stuff rather than just being piles of painted shrapnel like they are in the michael mm. bay films you know <laughs> they look like you can hold them and they won't stab your fingers yeah they look friendly and they look cool and yeah and it's just it's such a nice film as well bumblebee it's got like this whole it's got like this real spielberg vibe running through it all the way through like coming of age spielberg action film type thing close and bit of close encounters in there you know that kind of stuff so well, I think th- these things go full circle sometimes, don't they? Yeah. Like yeah. the audience definitely, obviously the audience wanted what they got at the time because they sold like hotcakes. But then after a certain amount of time that, you know, that, that formula gets a bit stale and then they, they try to do the thing where they, um they deconstruct it slightly or they, you know, they diverge from that, that style and then mm. they refine it. And I, I don't know. I feel like it was, I feel like it's almost um formulaic in its own way because we knew that this, like eschewing the old standard was going to happen at some point they've you know it just took a while to get there yeah i feel like yeah you had to go full circle to get there we had to go away to come back what over a decade of shoddy films before we got this i mean that happens i guess yeah it took a long long time a long long time but yeah i mean if this is them finding their feet now then i hope they continue in this direction and i hope they can make more films that follow on directly from this that have nothing to do with the other movies because that would be so much better. And this is this is just such a such a nice film. It's like it's, it's a nice film to sit and watch. But yeah, it was good. It was really good. And Aquaman uh Aquaman was great um soundtrack aside. Aquaman was great. <laughs> What's wrong with the soundtrack? Uh <laughs> There's just points where they use songs from the official soundtrack in the movie, and it's really jarring because like the it just really doesn't fit with the scene, or it just it just messes with my head a little bit, or messes with the mood of the film, and I I I end up like laughing when I shouldn't laugh and things like that. <laughs> well, I think DC is notorious for putting or like trying to put a lot of the heavy lifting on the music yeah because they don't know how to like score a scene or like how to write a scene because that was that was really evident with suicide squad and i'm surprised it's happening here but like i've seen i've seen twitter stuff talking about like a really out of place britney spears song or something i don't know about a really out of place britney spears song in this but there's definitely a very out of place um pitbull song Oh, okay. Yeah, don't <laughs> even remind me. <laughs> There's a cover of Africa by Pitbull. You know, Toto's Africa. Wait, that wasn't a joke? You guys are talking about this? <laughs> no, no, that's, that's real, man. That's real. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, for the movie. I I thought maybe somebody just remixed it or something. Oh, no. But no, I don't no, know. No, so it's no, like an officially no. licensed song for this film. Yeah, someone someone let Pitbull have that song. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So I, I saw Aquaman uh, myself just after Christmas, and like it's okay. Like there's a lot of discourse going on either that it's terrible or that it's um, completely amazing, amazing. And <laughs> I think I land in the middle where I really appreciate how over the top and comic book as hell it is. And it's comic book as hell um, in a really cool way. Like they just embrace things that would have been unthinkable like 10 years ago. Or like, I mean, in the show Entourage, it was a joke that they'd make uh, an Aquaman film. 
Um, and I think credit has to go to um, Zack Snyder for uh, sort of reimagining and casting uh, Jason Momoa, sort of redefining at least the cinematic look um, of Aquaman. But also, I think a lot of uh, a lot of kudos should go to James Wan because. Mm-hmm. Um, like they really just go there. Like they, everyone's been talking about the the octopus or squid playing the drums, but like uh, it, it really goes high fantasy. And if you're down for that, yeah, then it's fun. It, but uh, like for me, it doesn't do anything amazing. I don't think it's um, uh, like I've seen some discourse saying that it's um, it's like it's, it's genius in in its uh, OTP and cheese. I wouldn't go that far, but because uh, I think some of the some of the action is great, and then some of the action is like empty. Yeah. But um, yeah, o- overall, it, it's it's a fun enough romp. Uh, yeah. I I had fun with it. I I definitely had fun watching this film, and um, I like you say, I I really enjoyed like the comic book comic bookiness of it, and I think that's I think that is what I really liked about it, and that's that's why I came away thinking it was you know it was okay it was it's it's a it's a good film and it's up there with wonder woman and stuff as like one of the better dc films um but i i mean just points where that they that just that point where they put that after that t- that song it's just so jarring <laughs> i think it's as well the, the actual score by rupert gregson it's actually, is actually really good yeah it's pretty good yeah it's actually good uh, the score and like yeah, I think the cast are pretty good. Yeah, um, like uh, I'm always a fan for Patrick Wilson, especially hamming up as a bad guy. Oh, I'm in it for Black uh, Manta. Some some Dolph, yeah, some Black Black Manta action. Uh, yeah, Dolph Lundgren's pretty good in it. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, the thing is, like, I don't love the film, but it it's an enjoyable enjoyable romp. Yeah, I was I was in it for Black Manta from the start, to be honest. And I love I love that they they went there with. You know, like with the costumes and stuff like that in this film as well. Yeah. Like in in a lot of um, in a lot of superhero films, they try and like real world it up a little bit. But this looks like they've just this straight out of the pages. Like they've not even tried to kind of like change it in any way, and they've just rolled with whatever they look like on the pages of a comic. Yeah, kept like it that you, way. Yeah. You have like different tribes of like undersea people riding sharks and seahorses like they're like they're wild stallions it's uh it's a thing to behold yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and you know the, the black manta's costume black manta's suit is you know i, I thought i thought if they, if they would mess with anything they'd mess with that but because it, in the comics it just with that huge helmet it just kind of looks a little bit ridiculous. but they I... just they just kept it they just rolled with it <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the thing now. I think yeah. that um, the success, the global success over the last sort of 10, 15 years of uh, comic book movies, especially superhero comic book movies, has sort of pushed the Overton window, and it's so weird to use that uh, in, <laughs> in this context, but has moved that to, instead of in the 2000 X-Men movie where they all have to wear leather and black and blah, blah, blah. I think it's shifted everything enough that we can just uh, accept someone wearing a suit uh, in all yeah. of its color. I think the stuff like the DC TV shows 
um, are to thank for that as well. I think mm. some of some of the costumes when I see pictures from like Flash or Arrow, and I'm like, man, like in Smallville, uh, like uh, ten years before or so, n- no one wore any costumes ever. They were always like shoddy yeah. or like they were wearing the colours. And then like oh, I'm seeing some clips from these DC shows and. People are just in there. They're just yeah. they're just wearing the costumes. They're walking around like normal people. Like <laughs> Titans, for example. Robin yeah. in Titans, you know. <laughs> and I and I think, yeah, I think all of that has contributed yeah. obviously the MCU has contributed to where we're at a, at a level where people can be wearing like gold and green uh, armor and everyone instead of like cracking up or thinking this is ridiculous everyone's just on board for it because yeah. we sort of know what these things what these properties are now yeah exactly uh, i i loved it for that it was great i lo- i loved it for its hamminess in in its play in places and things like that and the fact that it was just um it it was just fun yeah the, the only gripe i had like i keep saying is the soundtrack because there are some things that should not be and i think uh, Pitbull's cover of Toto needs to go to the Phantom Zone. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. Um, yeah, Ray, so what have you been up to? I think you've been playing some video games, haven't you? Well, before I get to the video games, since you were talking about um, comic book adaptations, uh, me and Leon actually watched I Kill Giants at the weekend. So that's a comic book um, that I spoke about in the past. And there's... there's... They made a, a movie adaptation, which is on Netflix, so it's really easy to access. We all sat down and watched it. It's one that uh, my girlfriend and some of her friends really enjoyed the comic books. We've been meaning to watch the film for a long time. Um, I don't have loads of thoughts on it. I, I, I did enjoy the movie. I thought that it kind of rushed its magical realism premise a little, but like the ending still was a gut punch, even though I knew what was coming and I you know got a little bit dusty in the room, and I think everyone was kind of taken by that, but... Yeah, overall, good watch. Um, but I think I I did prefer the comic, to be honest. How about you, Leon? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd echo those feelings pretty much. I think it's um, I think it's a pretty good adaptation. It manages to uh, condense what I remember, uh, like down to uh, a consumable time. Um, and I I quite like. I think the movie's cast pretty well. I quite like the actors. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, like, I, I do agree. Cause it, it has the, that thing where, with the magical realism, it almost takes too long to set it going, in a way. So, and that sort of... Uh, so it takes too long to sort of nail down what it's going to do. So then the second half of the film has to zip through a lot of that stuff. So you just have mm. to accept a lot of things. Uh, I think I said this to you guys at the time. It, it felt like a film where, um, like a lot of adaptations, um, shortcuts often ha- have to be made for the script to work. But a lot of that relies on people having some knowledge of the, of the, the, the original text. And I definitely yeah. felt elements of that here. But um, overall, I, th- I think it was um, uh, I think it was effective um, in in sort of moving that to the big screen, and um, I think that um, as you say, the emotional beats, especially like 
towards the end do do still hit and um, got a, a, a good message behind it and um, yeah it's it's enjoyable to watch and it's uh, I think my only down not, not even a downside but um, the, the only thing that kept pulling me out of the movie is that it's obviously set in America but um, like I could tell it was shot on the British Isles <laughs> everyone looked like. <laughs> British or Irish, and then I found out it was shot in Ireland. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, but no, uh, that that aside, it's um, it's an enjoyable, um, enjoyable little film. Everything, everything just had that dismal edge about it, did it? Like... It was a lot of grey. It, it did have a lot of grey. It, like it, it worked really well. I think. Yeah, it did. And was like it... even the yeah. the American school stuff, I was. If you hadn't told me, I don't think I would have picked up on it. To be honest. No, you just can't tell people apart. Oh. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> was it was it raining the whole time? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, they were I mean... on the coast, so that doesn't necessarily put it yeah. apart. Yeah, I need to watch that still. Actually, I, I, it's been on my list for a while, so I should get around to it. Maybe Definitely read check it, it out as well, yeah. Greg. Yeah. yeah. Um. Other than that, um. I played my Ghostbusters board game that I've had for ages. Finally managed to get that out and play it. It's uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's canon to the Ghostbusters comics, uh, oh, cool. the IDW ones, and uh, it's got art by the uh, uh, Dan Shuning and stuff like that. So it's kind of like um, it's produced a, like adjacent to the comics and it's like canon to the comics and everything else which is really cool so we we, we uh, me and my uh, regular D&D group sat down and played that last week um and that was really enjoyable it's a really fun game it's kind of like a, a role-playing game um but like rp light like dungeon crawler light type thing so it's easier to like i set it up and i think i spent an hour and a half to two hours before everyone came round, uh, reading through the book, uh, playing a couple of rounds by myself, because you can play it solo, um, just to kind of see how it all works. And then when everyone was there, we were just ready to just go in and play, because I didn't want it to suffer from um, Arkham Horror Syndrome, where you spend ages with a group of people, you spend four hours learning the game, an hour playing it, and then the next three hours watching it burn in a dustbin. <laughs> so I didn't want that. <laughs> so yeah, no, we we uh we we I set it up and had it all ready and had all the rules kind of familiarized myself with it all before we played it, which is probably the best way to do things to be honest. Never ever ever buy a board game and take it to your friend's house in the cellophane. That's a no-no. <laughs> so um that was fun and um it's been it's been a Ghostbustersy week because we got the teaser for Ghostbusters 3, which is a film that's that just came out of nowhere that they're making a Ghostbusters 3. Um, I mean, it's something that I think they've wanted to do since forever. Like, it's a film that's been... They say it's been 30 years in the making or whatever because there's been, like, various script drafts for it and then there was... Um, there's been, like, issues with getting actors to return and things. I think Bill Murray's always reluctant to come back and do Ghostbusters. Um... And then they've uh, they've always had like they had the video game that came out on Xbox and stuff like that, which was 
supposedly the Ghostbusters 3 that never happened, but they released it as a game. So we've had this teaser, which I got quite hype and nostalgic about it because it has the score from um, one of the first two Ghostbusters movies in there. Uh, it's the first, I think it's like the, the original Ghostbusters score in there, and then it has like some sound effects. And it just it just had that atmosphere. Like It's only a very short teaser, and it doesn't show anything of note but it just it just nails the atmosphere and mm. for me like that was what the 2016 film was missing because i watched the 2016 film and uh, although it was a ghostbusters film and everything else it just didn't feel like a ghostbusters film to me it's like it felt knockoffy a little bit i don't know but this this kind of nailed the atmosphere in that little teaser so that's why i got excited about it um and then off the back of that i turn up to the comic book shop on new comic book day and i pick up the idw 2020 comics which sort of like catapults me straight into the comics so we're actually talking about comics now on a podcast about comics funny that so uh <laughs> i pick up these idw 2020 comics which are idw celebrating 20 years basically 20 years of idw and um there's a ghostbusters one they're just one shots that are set 20 years into the future so the ghostbusters comic is is set 20 years into the future from the current ghostbusters books and features the uh sanctum of slime team and the original ghostbusters as well as a a ghost from the real ghostbusters tv series named what it's it's a pretty cool one shot it's nice and fun uh, there's a turtles one as well, which I picked up, which is like it, it just they're just pretty cool one shots. They were quite fun, um, and I just wanted to mention them briefly, uh, just to kind of like say, yes, it's been a good week for Greg. <laughs> <laughs> so that moves us into the first comic that we were going to officially review for this episode, which was these Savage Shores, which is something that Ray has mentioned before on a previous episode. Um, I have caught up and read issues one and two, and um, we've been very graciously afforded a preview copy of issue three uh, for us to review and talk a little bit about for you guys today. So, Ray, do you want to uh, do you want to introduce us? Take us away. Yeah. So, these Savage Shores. It's a comic, as Greg said. Um, I brought up a few episodes ago when I reviewed issue number one, um, written by Ramvi, who I briefly spoke about in a previous episode before that um, about a book that he wrote called Graffiti's Wall which I really enjoyed so that's one of the reasons I paid attention to this one so it's um, written by Ram V illustrated by Sumit Kumar uh, coloured by Vittorio Estone and lettered by Aditya Bidikar and I, I think to quickly cover what I what I spoke about last time like I think I said I really enjoyed the the artwork primarily because it has this really like soft and hazy and like heat-stricken mood to it that I, I really liked. I really liked the, the framing and pacing, and there's like particular sequences where you see, um, for example, a guy dive out of a window, and then it drops into the panel below and then backtracks over to the left and down again. So instead of having it split up into... It, it's split up into six, you know, windows panels uh, with the guttering, but the scene itself behind those that panelling remains as it is, and, like, it's really really deft and like artistic in the way that it leads your eye across the page. I really enjoyed that kind of stuff. I think I mentioned that I really liked how scathing and poetic the writing can be. Like um, one of the, one of the comments I loved uh, was 
one of the characters in India is talking about um, on the topic of civilization. He says civilization is where men die with dignity and learn to live with shame, like stuff like that that really grabbed me. Um, so yeah, what what did you think about uh, at least issues number one and two, Greg? Um, I I thought they were great. <laughs> I've got I you you said that this would be something that I would enjoy, and I think you were on the money with that definitely. Um, when you mentioned the artwork. It brings up like the the things that I liked about it, the fact that everything has this diffuse quality and a soft edge, like mm. composed of hundreds of separate particles when you kind of inspect it a little bit closely. Um, mm. And it's if it's made with pencil and chalk or charcoal on watercolour backgrounds, which I really, really like. Um, I like the way they make use of, I, I want to call it a nine panel page layout, but it's never ever nine panels. So... Well, actually, it is. It is in in a couple of instances. It is nine panels, and you can fit the way they do the panels. You could fit nine panels on a page, um, but they tend to go three, then three, and then join two together, or or have mm. um, two large horizontal panels and then three across the bottom. And I love the way they use that nine pa- that nine panel layout, um, mm. and the way that they use the three panel blocks to draw attention to important moments um, by by having shorter beats between those panels. So they can show a sequence taking place over a shorter period of time with those three panels by having such short beats between them, like something as simple as somebody taking a mask off. Um, they draw it out over three panels and it's just really cool how they do that and how they're able to kind of like draw attention to pivotal or slightly more important moments on the page on on a page like a slightly more important moment on a page uh by placing it in that three panel block and like having shorter time beats between each point in that three panel block yeah i love how there's some there's some of these pages where like as you say it's it's built as a construction of nine different panels, but you could, in some way, if you if you took them all together and like placed them horizontally, it would have like a um, a panoramic image, and you can see the people walking through and talking through yeah. that that structure, and it's consistent like throughout the entire thing, and it's restructured that way down. And then to support yeah. that, some you know the 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 lettering, like the speech bubbles, tracks from the top left to the bottom right, and it's it's really clever the way they've. They've arranged it and, like you said, uh, sells the passage of time in really interesting and different ways based yeah. on how, like, how things are passing through the guttering or whether the 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 thing that the guttering is laid over actually splits up the, the like the quote unquote camera, or if it's if it's one scene that has been broken in broken by those gutters. It's, yeah, it's really smart. I I think, and they constantly mix it up as well because you yeah. see things to do with the passage of time across an ocean, which is obviously takes so much time and then you have moments like you say taking off a mask where it can it can separate those moments so granularly i, yeah. I really enjoyed that but the the point i was uh, I'm making as well is the fact that when it separates moments down granular like that it's usually drawing your attention to something important mm-hmm. like there might yeah. be something important or pivotal in a speech put bubble in one of those panels hmm. And that kind of like, it draws your attention to that moment. It draws your attention to that part of the page because that's where the crux of the story is or the crux of the story information is. Mm. And I quite like that. Um, 
So I was going to say, there's also, <laughs> uh, speaking of the panel construction, there's one place where they break that, where they split like the, the middle section into not three panels, but six, mm. like these quick cuts of a, of a dance sequence that's happening at nighttime. Yeah. I, I really, I really like that whole couple of pages where it's, it's almost silent, but you get these two threads sort of diverging and converging together again. Yeah. I think one of my favorite pages, I think is at the beginning of issue two with the, um, well, someone is <laughs> tooling up and there's a flashback in the middle of the page so it's got like him tooling up and then flashback and then the rest of him tooling up and flashback to a scene that happened in issue one yeah 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 in a nine panel layout which i really liked and it's also really it's sold really well by the the coloring like the the shading and like um selling that the, the guy who's tooling up is in like candlelight but mm. then the flashbacks are set at night outside um, like yeah. in the moonlight, yeah. It's I I love how it because it does that a lot. It flips between flashback and current day, but the narration from a letter is consistent over the top of it, yeah. and it you're never confused because because the coloring is so like striking between each different scene, so you you don't ever really get lost between the two. Yeah, you know you know what's ha- you know what's happening where because of the. Hmm. the different color palette used in each scene or in each set of panels which is really hmm. cool and um i just wanted to like you you actually brought me on to my next point by mentioning the letters because hmm. i actually think that's like an excellent device for pacing and framing um and a good way to fit narration into a comic the fact that they're doing it through the through the lens of these letters back to england hmm. um i think that's great and the way they use that in uh it, it, throughout this comic actually is is really cool as like, it's interesting as like a, isn't it yeah because because the way because we're talking about the passage of time and like even the letters like you're seeing you're seeing scenes run into each other over over like short periods but then it's it's offset by what's clearly like um like time shifted letters because obviously letters take so long to transport back and forth over yeah. the ocean yeah and like knowing the the context in which the letter's being read, but seeing the context in which it occurred to have been written is, it, again, it's that thing of I never really feel lost, even though that should be confusing. Mm. That whole, you know, mixing of the future and the past happening at the same time. Yeah, I, I, I think that's yeah. really clever. Yeah, definitely. Um, and obviously, because this comic is about mythical monsters and beasts... <laughs> brings me on to my next part um i love the designs of the characters in this and some of the creatures are very cool and uh, i just wanted to bring up that i really enjoyed the parallels that are drawn between the two types of creature in this in this comic um i mean you mentioned i think you already mentioned didn't you previously that there are vampires am i allowed to say that I think we're allowed to say that because yeah. it's a reveal that happens yeah. quite early on in the am first I, issue, at least. Am I allowed to say what the other thing is? If you, if you'd like, I mean, if it, if you think <laughs> it'll sell people on the concept of the whole yeah. story, I mean, I think it's yeah, I mean, it's integral because the whole part, yeah. the whole point of it is that it's it's monster monsters written from a different perspective or from like a different yeah. culture, 
Yeah, and I, I think that is useful to talk about. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah, because I was going to say, uh, I was going to talk about how this comic draws parallels between vampires and rakshasas, as they are both creatures that feed on mortal men, mm. and um, they're both in in as similar as they are different, basically in the way that they um, in the way that they're portrayed in this comic, and it's like um, I, I quite enjoyed that. And the fact that we're, we're, it's building up to this kind, there's this like this whole undercurrent the whole time and it's building up to it. And it's like they're two sides of the same coin. And it's something that mm. is explored more so in issue three, I think, than the first two. But it's getting to uh, a point where um, I think these two, these two types of, of creature are going to are going to meet and it's going to be something quite, quite cool. <laughs> Yeah, there's something interesting happening there about yeah. like the honourable monster mm. and the dishonourable monster hunter. Um, yeah. And yeah, I'm keen to see where it goes and I don't want to say too much for fear of giving away too many details. Um, I'm trying to think of other things that I can say that won't spoil the plot because I really want to like preserve the, the surprises that happen along the way because I think each issue so far has ended in a way that feels really like cinematic in the modern television sense like i'm definitely hooked yeah. into reading issue four after the end of issue three definitely you know because not just not not just selling the action no. uh but selling like the emotional like character stuff that's happening underneath it like the reason that you want to keep hearing about these people and you want them to stand up and carry on yeah um like i genuinely care about the the actors in this play you know yeah definitely i do too um, when you talk about the action, there is some actually there is some brilliant pacing with the action in this comic. Again, using those three panels that we talked about. Mm. But yeah, it's really really good for that. Definitely. I do want to give a shout out to Aditya Bidikar's lettering in this because this is this is an example of a comic where I think it's almost a star of the show because the narration is so heavy on these letters, you know, the letters mm. that are being sent back and forth, yeah. not just to England, but then in issue three introduces some lettering that happens um, between some of the Indian characters. And one, you're all, you, it, it, the lettering is unique between each voice and not just the lettering itself, but like the boxes that it's hemmed in by, you get like the way that letters are, uh, are sent back and forth between, the the english forces or back and forth between um like aristocrats who are on the ship or are, uh, on india sending in india sending stuff back to london but then also you get um i don't think it's i'm gonna have, i've got a note here um the writing that we see in issue three it's um because like it's text from kerala so i think it's malaya lam i'm not 100 percent sure about that but like the it's I don't have a translation for it because I can't read it, but it looks right. And the fact that there's so many different, not just language, like styles, but also languages um, sold in very different scripts and handwritten fonts. I just think that's that's an achievement in itself to give every character a unique script, like a handwritten mm. script. It's great. Yeah. It, that is that is a pretty, that is one of the things that is pretty cool, that everyone's got their own handwriting and everyone's got their own voice in that. It's just really cool. Mm. I did enjoy that. So yeah, I mean, we have uh, we have been graciously given a uh, a review, an advanced copy of issue three to review as well, which uh, which um, I think you were you were given a link to that by the writer Ram, weren't you? 
I was indeed. Yeah, it was yes. very very kind of him to to give us yep. a an early copy to to review, which yep. we can we can do now. Like I I don't think I have anything additional to say specifically about issue three. And again, because I'm afraid of revealing too many plot points. That's about it. Yeah, issue, yeah. I don't want to spoil it, but it's a good one, a very very good one, and everything that we've just said about the comic in general and the first two issues there applies to this as well because it carries on very much in the same it marches on very much in the same way and um there's some some very very cool twists in this book in issue three and like i'm i'm not normally one to be invested in like political dramas i think i tend to find it really hard to get my head around like backstabbing military operations and stuff like that but this has a bunch of that because it focuses on like the guardian of a young prince who has come into ownership of his kingdom and doesn't you know isn't quite isn't experienced enough to know how to combat um you know other the other kings of the lands and then also combating the british forces who are trying to take over and you know um industrialize the country and I don't know, I think maybe because maybe it's just the setting, maybe it's that it's a little bit close to home than it normally is for me, but I'm like, I'm following it and I'm, I, it's just, it's just great to, to see this conflict in yeah. a way that I can actually follow and keep up mm. with. So yeah, if you like those kind of political machinations, that's also a, a very positive point to this story. Yeah. And uh, Ace Comicals can put a stamp of approval on issue three because it's very good. And you should read 100%. the first two. You should read the first two and then you should pick up issue three when it comes out, which uh, the release date that I've got for it is February 6th. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, we should, uh, you should all read the first two and you should pick that up because it's really good. And that is These Savage Shores. So moving on from there, life is strange, isn't it? It is. <laughs> I would say the case is out for it being definitively strange. <laughs> if 2018 proved anything, it's proving that life is really fucking strange. <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah. So there was an episode before the run of Christmas episodes we did and our Spider-Verse review that I was meant to be on and I wasn't able to be on. Um and in that um, episode, I was going to speak about um, this book. So, I mean, the serendipity of that is that there's been two, uh, a second issue since then, so I've got a, uh, a better grasp of the um, story and, it's, uh, and where it's going. Um, so, uh, Life is Strange, which is a comic uh, written by uh, Emma Vicelli, who's... Uh, at least for me, more known as an artist um, in varying varying works. Um, And in here, she's um, the writer. Um, Artwork done by Claudia Leonardi. Uh, Colours done by Andrea Izzo. Uh, I don't think it's pronounced that way. I'm sorry, Andrea. Um, And letters by uh, Richard Starkins and Comic Crafts' Jimmy Betancourt. Um, So Life is Strange, the comic book, is the sequel uh, to the game uh, Life is Strange, uh, developed by Don't Nod Entertainment. Um, And what I will say up front, because I'm going to have to spoil the ending of Life is Strange to even talk about this first issue. 
So I will say directly up front, um, play the game if you've not played it. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. also, I'm going to put like a, a really loud, horrible siren noise in right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go, yeah, go for it. Um, well, I, I would, my, my, well, my non-spoiler blurb will just be, I think the book does a, a good job of um, picking up where, where the game uh, leaves off and deals with the consequences of one of the decisions at the end of the game in a really cool and interesting way. I think that... Um, Pacelli is really good at getting in the heads of these characters. And when I read their dialogue, I hear it in their voice actors' voices, um, <laughs> which is pretty cool. And just a quick runner. So uh, Life is Strange, the game, was about uh, focused on uh, Max Caulfield, who's the lead character. She was like a photography student who was going to a special, uh, special academy. Um, she'd left her, her town of Arcadia Bay to live in Seattle for a while, but came back to go to this academy. Uh, in that time, she'd fallen, uh, not out, but uh, been distanced from her friends, especially her best friend, uh, Chloe Price. And the game, in the game, what pretty much happens is that early on, Max develops this power to rewind time at any moment, and that that is a... A gameplay mechanic. So the game is a graphic adventure game. So in in, in the same way of games uh, such as uh, The Walking Dead or a lot of the other uh, Telltale games and uh, many games before it as well. But in this particular mold, um, you would talk to characters uh, uh, and you'd have a choice of one or two things. In those in other games, you pick your choice, you stick with it, and, and then it, it has a branching out. Um, type of story skeleton which generally would curve back in on on the way end but it would change it would change the journey not the destination but with life is strange you were able to rewind time after you made every choice and in effect that made uh made things it makes it sound like it makes things easier but in a way it makes things more difficult because then you're like oh both of these uh, these choices suck which one am i gonna go with and i think it was implemented really well mm-hmm. um and yeah, pretty much the the main idea of the story is that there's consequences for using this power and yada yada yada. Um, and I think that it, the writing doesn't stink of like, I mean, the writing in a way is better than the writing in the game, and, and I mean that down to the the dialogue uh, of the characters. I mean, I'm a big fan, but it was like heavily memed all the hellers and like <laughs> fake teen dialogue that was in the original game i love it all but it, it, it is very silly whereas here i think that's been pared down a bit it still feels very true to the characters especially uh chloe who's the more sort of troubled tattooed rebel of the two or max is sort of the goody two-shoes um student um i think um uh, Leonardi's uh, art is really, uh, really cool in the sense that it captures the essence, uh, essences of these characters, um, while sort of giving them their their own look and their own sort of time to shine. Um, the character um, character designs, and there's a bunch of sort of uh, like new characters in this. Uh, are really cool. Um, I like all the different designs. They're very uh, representational. 
and um, just little things like Chloe's tattoos and graffiti on the wall. Uh, there's a lot of detail in there that um, that it, it, it's sort of shining through, and I, I'm a big fan. I think that um, uh, I think that uh, on Andrea Izzo's, uh colors are really cool. There's a really nice sort of butterfly motif that goes through, which um, harkens back to the original game, um, where the whole butterfly slash butterfly effect thing was was a big sort of. Uh, visual uh, indicator um and I, I think as a whole um this book is really enjoyable um feels like it's going to be sad um but i wouldn't recommend you reading i mean you can jump in if you really don't care but it really works as like a companion to the game um but yeah that's my non-spoiler like blurb for it but uh, now i'm going to spoil the end of the game because i have to <laughs> so <laughs> This book, at the end of the game, for those that don't care about spoilers or those who have forgotten, you get there's a main choice between the two because of uh, Max's powers having a repercussion. And basically, it's been framed online, which I quite like, as Bay versus Bay. <laughs> so Bay is in Arcadia Bay. Do you save Arcadia Bay? Or Bay is in um, Chloe. Do you save Chloe? can save one, not the other. So I think a lot of people uh, picked Bay as in B-A-E. <laughs> uh, whereas um, I, I picked B- uh, Bay uh, as in Arcadia Bay because um, I was playing I was playing good. I was playing uh, White Hat. Uh, I wanted to look after the town. It felt it felt like it, it felt right in the, in the sense of a tragic story, but I didn't feel good about it <laughs> because it immediately uh, is another example of this sort of bury your gaze um, trope uh, where it's, um, like a, it's like a phenomena in like uh, fiction. You mostly see it in TV, but it's in books, movies, everything, where the gay character has to die. Um, at like for whatever reason, whether it be sacrifice to save save the straits or whatever it being, like uh, that there's some tragedy where the gay has to die, and it, it it's sort of like um, the LGBTQ version of the tragic uh, mulatto trope, which used to be in like old fiction, where the uh, character who is uh, of mixed race, usually black and white would have to die uh, for some reason to sort of push the story along. Um, and each, both tropes are like reflective of time biases and, and writing. Uh, and it's a thing where in some ways you get to eat your cake uh, and have it too, but also I think uneducated, it seems like a cool way of, oh, I'm going to make this character cool by having them sacrifice um, themselves. But like uh, women in refrigerators and such, like it's quite harmful in a way. And I think there was a TV season not too long ago, like a couple of years ago, where uh, maybe two years ago or so, where I think there was like one of the higher number recorded for the US TV season of uh, uh, LGBTQ characters dying um, uh, for some reason, whatever, in the shows they're in. And considering the the low number of representation they have anyway is a little alarming. So, like, 
it, it does. I can understand why people would would pick the ending. To me, that seems savage because <laughs> a lot of people are going to die uh, for you to save uh, save your friend. But I kind of get it as well, and it works in its own in its own um, own idea, and it's a good uh, in a way a rejection of that trope. But um, what the comic does really well um, is that it takes all of that stuff on on board. And instead of like, I always found the the uh, sort of cutscene you get after you pick the the BAE ending to be kind of lame. Way they just it's really it's really short compared to the Arcadia Bay ending, uh, and they like just drive through town, which has been destroyed by um, this hurricane, which has been brought about uh, likely due due to uh, Chloe using her powers to to save. Uh, Earth. Max using her powers to save Chloe, and what happens is that the yeah, they just drive through town. It's destroyed and it's like done. There's no sort of catharsis. There's no sort of like moment between the two of them. And and, and I got to add as well that uh, in the in the original game, uh, like queerness is only sort of hinted at. I mean, there's like one specific scene, but I think a lot of that stuff was added back. Or like retconned in in the before the storm game, which is set before. But um, yes, it's all like unsaid and and but like in there. Um, but it's kind of like it leaves you a bit empty. So what uh, what this does really well is it deals with all the ramifications and and the guilt and the uh, the like anxiety and anguish of having made that choice and what the outcome of it is and it's really cool like um i think it's to the comics credit that i know it's only a four issue run and one issue into it i was like oh no they're not gonna be able to do all this in three issues no and now two issues in i'm like no way i'm halfway like (laughs) i could i could have this run for 12 issues at least um just because, I, like, I do like these characters. I really like that game. I do like these characters, and um, I want to spend more time in this world. On evening and an ending that I didn't pick, I kind of like. I think it's a, um, a wise idea to make a sequel following this ending. I think it's just rich in terms of uh, how you can explore character motivations um, and like character psychology. Um, uh, and it really is, in some ways, um, like uh, Return to Oz, in a way. We're going back to a place that isn't quite as you left it. Um, it isn't quite as it isn't quite as magical or, or isn't quite like the memories. Um, and I think all of that is handled really well. Um, I think the relationship between the two main characters is... Um, it, feels good. It feels like um, you can tell because this is set a year after that game, and you can it feel it doesn't just feel like five minutes later and they've just picked up. It feels like a year later, and, it, and their their relationship has grown uh, or it's like evolved in a way that sounds natural for a year after, especially going through a, a, a big uh, sort of science fantasy magical event. So. Um, yeah, uh, I, I would recommend this book, and I'm interested to see where it goes. 
And I don't know. I, I kind of want them to be like, uh, yeah, four wasn't enough. Uh, let's extend the run. I don't know. I want it to have its defined ending, of course. <laughs> um, but I, if if they want to come back for a sequel, and I'm saying this, knowing that there's two more issues that could suck, uh, but I don't think they're going to, um, I would recommend yeah, so that is Life is Strange issues one and two. Um, on from there, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to talk about the new little bit of Spider King that we have been given this week. So you may remember I've talked about a comic called The Spider King on previous episodes. If you want to hear me talk about the first kind of volume of Spider King, it's like uh, like f- four issues. It's really, really good, and it's Vikings versus Aliens. Uh, and I have talked about it on episodes 31, 36, and 44. Um, and I've even met the guys behind it uh, at Thought Bubble this year, uh, last year even, which was really cool. And uh, now we have this new little one-shot here, which is called The Spider King Frostbite. And this is composed of two stories. Um, so the first story in here is called Frostbite and it continues on from where the previous four issues of the Spider King leave off and it centers around the original group who have undergone a bit of a redesign so some of the characters look slightly different and all the better for it I quite like the new designs Um, after the events of uh, Spider King issues one to four, uh, Spider King volume one. Uh, Travelling across the land, looking for a home. What should they happen across? But more stuff from space. Yes. <laughs> so um, yeah, they've undergone a slight redesign, which I've already mentioned, which is really cool. The characters look great, and um, the monster alien creature designs are still remain ingeniously gnarly in this comic. There are some excellent full pages. There's this full page design with this stag with its bones glowing through its fur and like the skeleton of some dead king where the bones have been picked clean, like hanging in its antlers. And it's just beautiful. Um, And like uh, there's all these other creatures like wolves and other woodland creatures with their bones glowing through their skin. Um, which I won't I won't tell you why that's happening and I won't tell you exactly what's going on, but it's awesome and you need to read it. <laughs> um, and these creatures are of like a hive mind and there's some really cool stuff going on, some really great action. Um, everything that I loved about the first four Spider King comics are condensed into this this little this little piece of joy right here. Um, and yeah it's just it does everything the first four did and more it it's the action remains sharp and representation of movement and motion is still one of this comic's strengths um the designs are still these um overexerted hyper cartoon leaning towards abstract character designs that work really well for the subject matter and just the the the, the sheer bombasticness of this tale to begin with and the way that they they the way that the action works in this and and what's happening and the the violence in these comics coupled with the the kind of like the cartoonishness of the actual character designs and things just just 
it just works so so well it's just such a great heady cocktail and they nailed it in the first four comics and they nail it again in this i have to say um the second story has a different team it's not the original team working on it and um that story is called the errand and this is a solo story for my favorite character sigrid and she takes on a solo quest of sorts from a strange creature who's stolen her arrows um he visits her as she's camped up for the night and he's like okay you're not getting your arrows back until you fetch this for me so she she gets sent on a fetch and carry um and i really like the colors in this one because it takes place mainly at night um and they do this this cool thing with like glowing lights where like uh, a campfire glow and then you get like um glow from other things that turn up in the story and it's just it's just really cool how they managed to do that in the snowy environment that they're in um and uh again there's some fantastic action panels in this as well that's something that's um across both art teams in this book they managed to nail that quite well which i really like um there's a, there's a really cool moment where the comic falls completely silent and we're under the water in a frozen lake and the way they represent the fact that we're underwater is really nice. They have this like kind of fogged blur over the art. So you know like when your glasses steam up slightly um, and it's not enough to make it so that your vision is actually impaired but it's enough to soften everything and sort of de-sharpen everything that's what it looks like and it's really cool how they do that um the art in this second story is but very bold and very colorful and it it again suits the story and subject matter perfectly um yeah bold lines bright colors less abstract but still great for the type of book that the spider king is and i i look forward to moving on from this and seeing more spiders and aliens basically because this is great uh spiders and aliens i mean vikings and aliens sorry <laughs> vikings and aliens uh because because it's great and it's just it's just such a such a such a great thing to just a joyful thing to read for me i love it and it's just nice to have more spider king to read especially after the first volume was so great so uh the art team uh the full team actually full credits for this so frostbite Written by Josh Van, illustrated by Simone Diamini, coloured by Adrian Block, and lettered and edited by Chaz Pangburn. And that's Chaz with a uh, exclamation mark. Um, the Errand, which is the second story in this book, uh, is written by Josh Van, illustrated by Daniel Azari, lettered and edited by Chaz Pangburn. And uh, yeah, it's just a great comic. They've got variant covers by. Uh, Zozo G. Penalta and Declan Shalvey. I'm sorry, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing your name correctly, but uh, Zozo, but um, I apologise if I haven't. And uh, yeah, it's it's a great little one shot, and it was a nice thing to have waiting for me at the uh, at the comic book store when I went in to pick up my books. Um, so I think is it time to die, Ray? I mean, nobody gets to choose when they die, but if we have to choose a time, let's make it now. Because why don't we roll? Why I... don't we roll on it? Why don't we roll a die to choose when well, we die? What kind of die are we rolling? I don't know. Take your pick. 
Well, if I was going to be any of the characters in in this new comic called Die, by written by Kieran Gillen, yeah, and um, art art by Stephanie Hans, uh, lettering by Clayton Cowles, yeah, uh, designs by Ryan Hughes, and edited by Chrissy Williams. I think if I had to pick any of these, I would have to go with the D eight, and that would be the guy called Matt, who's a grief knight. And his powers come from the despair that he feels. And I feel like if you've got, you know, despair in buckets, then you'd be super powerful. Um, so we, we talked about uh, Dai in our last episode, I think. Um, we talked about Dai issue number one, uh, which is a story about a group of 40-something adults that have to deal with re- uh, with the returning unearthly horror that they barely survived as teenage role players, where they got sucked into a, a demonic game of D&D um, and then returned, I think it was 15-odd years later, um, had to deal with their coming back into a world that had moved on without them, and then they only just they happened to get sucked back into it. And this issue number two is the beginnings of their adventure as adults in this fantasy setting that they escaped once as children. Um, I don't know if there's too much to add uh, to what we said in issue one. Like, the artwork is still fantastic. It's still um, really painterly. It's got this suffused fantasy style, which really works in context. Um, The narration over the top is deft and, uh, you know, gives the comic a sense of pace while also not letting you get left behind, not letting you get um, distracted by how many characters there are. You, you you have a sense of who everyone is and what everyone can do and all of their motivations. Um, so all of that remains from issue one. What I will say about this issue is that it really gives the thing that I was hoping for, which is the sense of like live-action role-playing, like... It's. I think we mentioned in that last episode that Kieran Gillen used to write for a video game magazine, so he clearly knows how the systems for video games works, and we get our first glimpse into like the, not just the synergy between the characters, but like them having such an experience knowing how to play with the powers and the abilities that they they have as these different archetypes, and then falling into these old established and really overpowered routines like they know what they're doing they they sort of begrudgingly fall back into their fantasy selves and use it to like forge ahead with this mission that they when they were kids they were new to it they didn't know what they were doing they just wanted to escape and this time they're adults they have lives to get back to they have you know husbands and wives and children waiting for them and they want to get through this experience as quickly as possible and I am along for this ride. I've, I was dragged through this issue. I read it twice, and I never do that. I never read the same issue back to back. Um, I think you guys should definitely check it out because I know that you enjoyed the first issue. Um, and I think I'm in this for the long run. In a way that I was hooked to The Wicked and Divine, which is another one of Kieran Gillen's previous properties. I was really into it, but this has a different, more sinister, more like... I guess it's more fantasy-tinged home, which is really working for me. And again, I love the art style. I love the writing. So yeah, die issue number two. And I urge you guys to, to catch up. Yeah, it sounds really good. Yeah, I need to I need to read issue two. It's, it's like waiting there for me to get on with it because I've read the first one. I really, really liked it. Hmm. Leon, I think it's your turn now, isn't it? It is. I'm going to take you both to the new world. Do I get to pick my polyhedral poison in this world? Or No, you don't. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 
lots of comics come out all the time. Um, and even Greg doesn't keep up with all of them, though he almost does. But lots of comics come out. So that at the end of the year, I like to look towards publications end of years list to, to see the stuff that sort of slipped through the cracks or um, like was nominated for Eisner's and stuff and that uh, that was been off the radar. So um, what I did this week is that I looked at some end of year lists to see what, what was new that um, that, I, that I missed. Um, and that my cursory search on the uh, Ace Comicals episode site with Control-F told me that uh, we hadn't covered in an episode where I wasn't around. Forgot. Or an episode I was on and forgot. Um, but uh, So I found a book uh, by uh, written by uh, Alice Cott um, and uh, the art done by Trad Moore. Um, and it's an image book called The New World. Um, it started earlier uh, last year. I can't remember the month. My brain telling me July. I think it's July, yeah. Um, and the premise is very dystopian. Basically, what happens is that in about two decades' time, uh, a, a bunch of nuclear devices simultaneously explode over five major cities. Uh, this um, After this disaster, uh, a second US civil war um, happens, and then the country is divvied up into four nations, um, the United States of East America, the Union, which is um, the sort of northeast coast where New York and... Uh, like New England would be, and uh, the U- Union of Federations, which is um, the the South uh, with Florida and Georgia and all that. Um, there's a big no man's land region, which is like the Midwest, the Rust Belt, going all the way up into to the Oregon, uh, and then you have the New California, which stretches as it seems from California all the way to Texas. Uh, and covers the full, pretty much the full West Coast. Um, and like during that time, uh, after the Civil War, different forces pushed together. There's a great American war made on the South, going into Mexico. Uh, and it, the, the size of the war alone would uh, make Donald Trump explode. So, but... Um, the story sort of picks up in uh, the new Los Angeles, as it's called. And in this awful dystopian future, um, things have not settled, but the, the warring states who, who have like sort of taken over and won, like life is continuing and, and it, it's horrible and as capitalist as you, you, you could imagine. And yeah, in this in this future, um, we basically follow this character called Stella, and her job is she's basically she's pretty much a bounty hunter, um, but she's also a actress, an A list star, and that's because bounty hunters have this show now 
where there's cameras on you and your bounties are filmed and broadcast to uh, loads of people around the nation. So there's a TV studio and she has a handler, like a producer in her ear at all times, giving her warnings and backing her up. Um, and yeah, in a way, she, she's kind of like a Twitch streamer who goes around catching people. Uh, and her, her, her twist is that she's quite connected, actually. And her wrinkle is that she never likes to kill when she catches people. Uh, and what happens every time a bounty hunter catches someone on the show, then a one-minute window opens and viewers at home get to vote on if the person um, will uh, live or die. Um, and her thing, so it's called Vote, Live, or Erase now, it's called. And then people all over, I think it's just in the state or the, the nation of New California, actually, they, they vote. Um, and most of the other bounty hunters do, do what it takes. So if, if, if the percentage is like um, like 52 uh, erase, 42 live, then that perp's getting killed on live TV. But um, Stella's thing is that she doesn't kill. Uh, at the same time, we um, meet this um, this other character who is kind of an anarchist. And he sets into motion something. Uh, his name is uh, Kirby. Um, and he sets into motion something that embarrasses the network, but also the president. Um, and that causes a big uh, like conundrum. So they go, they they sort of go hunting after uh, after him. And then during the course of the book, uh, let's just say our heroes or our characters meet, and complications uh, ensue as both not, not knowing each other's day jobs. Um. And yeah, I'll just leave it there for the story. So, like, the setup is really cool. Obviously, it, it will um, bring up uh, like notions of things like 2080 and Judge Dredd and all that. Um, even even the look of like Stella's helmet, but um, it's quite quite dreadish. But uh, what what's particularly really cool about this book is the artwork. Um, Moore's work is so detailed it's just unbelievable there is uh, there's um and it's not just a case of like oh it's like an overwhelming amount of detail but it's a mix of like having lots of detail but also um having a really cool style with with all of the detail and i mean stella's costume looks really really cool um kind of reminds me of like to be from like near automata mixed with like the aforementioned judge dread uh mixed with dorothy from um big o <laughs> and um but her like a costume sort of all white um and yeah like all the locations um have this really cool look to them where it, where it isn't just dystopian future capitalist mega city blah 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 it does have shades of that, but because it's in um, California, it captures the feel of the sprawl, even though they've added way more like large structures and skyscrapers. Um, it, they do, they manage to 
capture that sort of uh, sun-drenched sprawl. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of, as you can expect, uh, commentary in this book. And there's a lot of, uh, like, cool ideas here, which... um, uh, which have a kernel of something really, really uh, interesting going in here. And, um, yeah, it, it does entice you to want to read more. Um, there's a lot of uh, hooks and a lot of um, things to do with characters' pasts and motivations. Um, and like like I was saying at the beginning, or like I hinted to at the beginning, the, the, back, the backing story, there's a lot of lore there and a lot of in-between time which they sort of flash back to in this, but there's a, a lot more to be said. And it, it, it definitely has, it has a bit of a feel of, um, in some ways to number one of a bullet, which you spoke about, uh, last year. Yeah. But, um, while that was tomorrow in the future, this is like next decade or something. Yeah. Um, where well, it's, it's next decade in how it looks and the setting. But all the language, it's, it's almost like a thing where fashions from the, the 80s and 70s come back because it, the writing is very now. <laughs> like, um, it's very now with a couple of extra, um, like, future lingo words mm. thrown in. Yeah. But uh, it does feel like there's references to sort of linguistic, um, like, quirks which are very modern so in that way it, it it's it's a bit weird in that sense but um in terms of like story structure and um, the elements happening in the world and the characters yeah um a lot of that is um really well con- considered and um there's a definite um there's there's a definite idea or like I guess central thesis of what has, has created this world, what's at fault, and who the victims are. And for that, I think it's um, quite compelling. There's a um, there's three things that come to mind when you talk about that comic. The way you've described it to me makes me think of um, crowded the comic. Yeah, talked there's, about. there's the shades yeah. of that in here as well. Versus, which is a comic I've talked about previously on here, and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's The Running Man. <laughs> yes, um, yeah, I mean the the Running Man Running Man stuff is quite um, like there. Like, yeah, there's no hiding um, that yeah. influence. Um, but yeah, uh, definitely elements of all of that uh, you yeah. can be felt reading this. Yeah. I mean, they're all they're all great anyway, and I can imagine something that has elements of those three. Also written by Alish Cott, who is the guy who wrote Generation Gone, which another comic we've talked about on this cast. Hmm. Um, I can imagine that make for a good cocktail. So, yeah, yeah I, was, be... I definitely recommend yeah. reading the first issue. It, it's um, it's a longer issue than most. I'm not sure if yeah. it's double, but it's like definitely a bumper issue. Yeah, something that I want to check out definitely. So, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles time. Shredder is in hell. So, um, this is something that I was quite excited about last time we recorded an episode. Um, I had it on my pull list, 
and this is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder in Hell number one. So from the top, we'll just go through the uh, the credits. So we've got art and story by Mateus Santoluoco. Colours by Marcelo Costa with Mattias Santoluoco. Letters by Sean Lee. Assistant editor Megan Brown. Editor Bobby Kerno and published by Greg, publisher Greg Goldstein uh, on IEW. And this is the kind of what happens to Shredder after the events of issue 50 of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles ongoing. And it's also um, part of the ramp up and build up to issue 100 of TMNT which we will be seeing later this year and it's an interesting uh, an interesting little comic so what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to start off by spoiling issue 50 of TMNT by saying that Shredder dies and that Splinter it's a final battle between Shredder and Splinter Shredder comes off worse dies and that's the last we ever see or hear of Shredder. And that's the last we've ever seen or heard of Shredder in those comics for a long, long time. Uh, Splinter has taken over the Foot Clan and all the problems that come with that have been the subject of the past however many issues up to now. And now we're actually finally getting to see what's happened to Orokusaki. So this is Shredder's soul in his journey through hell and his his journey trying he's trying to make his way back back to our world and um he through in his journey through hell um it examines like his ideas of mortal like the idea of mortality and also it's shredder versus his own demons um trying to make his way back um there's a lot going on here and a lot to unpack and a lot that you probably wouldn't understand unless you've read previous Turtles comics. Um, so I won't go too much into exactly what's happening. Um, also, because it'd be, I think you see these are, these are plot points that might actually be end up being quite large spoilers as well. So I'm going to leave it at that as far as the story goes. Shredder's soul wandering the afterlife. Uh, and fighting his way back to the world of the living. Now, Santoloco's art in this is fantastic as always. I know him from previous Turtles comics. Um, he was the artist on issue 50. He had art duties on that. And uh, he also did um, art. He also had art duties for The Secret History of the Foot Clan. Which is one of my favourite miniseries. Uh, which kind of explores the past and the founding of the Foot Clan. And... Um, everything that happened into the lead up to um Hamato Yoshi and Orokusaki dying the first time round um yeah it, it's it's a uh, just for you two by the way because I know you two have, ne- have never really read or kept up with turtles comics it's a complicated story of death and reincarnation <laughs> and that that's like a running theme throughout that um now Yeah, it's just the art in this book is just gorgeous because yeah, and the the writing's really really good as well. It's um, it's a really good examination of mortality and some really really cool kind of like twists and machinations going on here and things that we learn throughout about Shredder and about 
the way he he is and the way his soul is like as a as a device as a vessel for carrying something rather regal and rather powerful um yeah it's just i mean i can draw parallels with godzilla in hell in the way that um we've had uh the way that we've got those books about godzilla's journey through hell and the way this takes like a similar similar kind of route with it being like a kind of an odyssey um i think both of them take from dante's inferno a little as well because that's like the original journey through hell story so yeah both of them kind of bounce off that a little bit but yeah i mean the first couple of pages we are treated to a flashback which kind of gives you context for where we are and the story so far for shredder and this is done in brush strokes so we have uh, a character at the beginning of the story um performing a ceremony to try and bring shredder's soul back to our world and uh, as she is doing this um she's making brush strokes uh like japanese calligraphy style on um a piece of parchment and the next two pages in those brush strokes we have um inset art in the ink uh of what happened and how it happened and how it all went down between shredder and splinter on that fateful night that new york rooftop um and uh, it's a really nice way to fit the exposition in and to introduce the current and to kind of give you a little bit of a reminder about what's going on. And also, if this was something that you just wanted to dip into, thinking it looked pretty gnarly on the shelf, I guess that's kind of your way in. Like, it, 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 does this, it does this thing where it would stand upon its own if you read those first two pages, because you would know enough then to be able to appreciate this, because you don't need to have followed the preceding, um, however many issues after issue 50, because I can't remember what issue we're at now, because it's that many, but after issue 50, the preceding however many issues, because Shredder's story ended at issue 50, so you, you could have stopped reading Turtles a long time ago, and then come back in with this, which is quite nice. Um, and um yeah it's just just there's some brilliant moments throughout the book there's uh, a really intense battle with some water demons that are kind of like oni octopus design which i really liked um so like um kind of like like a mermaid but bottom half is octopus top half is female oni demon uh and he's fighting these underwater and that sounds great yeah and the page stands out because it's got like these irregular panels like shattered glass like kind of shaped um and uh, they're o- overlapping panel designs to convey sort of shorter spaces of time and moments running parallel beautifully which is something that i think is unique to comics it's the ability for comics to run concurrent moments on the same page and yeah. examine each moment in detail i mean a film can run concurrent moments because that's the nature of a film things move all over the screen but what a film can't do without splitting the screen in two and almost having two separate things going at the same time is convey concurrent moments in great detail. So like you would have a fight scene in a fit. This is like the way I've been trying to describe. I've been trying to practice. I've been practicing describing this all day. So bear with me guys while I try to describe this to you. 
But imagine you have a fight scene in a movie. And you have two people going at it uh, in a warehouse. And what the film would have to do in a linear way is show one character's reaction to being punched and then the other. And it could only do one then the other. It couldn't do both concurrently in great detail like a comic can. Whereas on a comic page and what what we get a lot of in this comic actually with the action scenes is... um, it's able to show reactions concurrently, like two things happening concurrently. So a film would show someone struggling to free themselves from a tentacle um, and then would show the next beat. But like with this, it can show you those two things at the same time because they can inset a panel inside a larger panel, if that makes sense. Yeah, like it, yeah. it's... As uh, many, I believe many wise people have said before, it's like comic book panels are like moments frozen in time. Yeah. So, uh, so that mixed with the, the 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 structure you can put on a page means that you can cover a single second in pages worth of content. Whereas uh, film, being a medium which is pretty much dictated by time, yeah. in the sense that uh, every image is following the image before it um, to do what you're, you're saying requires either going back on itself or as you say, um, um, s- splitting the screen. Yeah. So um, it, in a way it, to effectively capture a moment, um, comic books seem to be the perfect medium in between books and film because you're, you, you're getting a visual read of a moment split over many panels. Exactly. You have just taken what I've spent 10 minutes rambling about and made it nice and concise and understandable for our listeners. <laughs> I, 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 wouldn't go that, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, it's, it's that kind of stuff. And uh, throughout the book, there's some beautiful colour work. Um, we get... Um, the way the way this is coloured is that everything is muted and there is an over overarching tone or uh, filter to use film film stuff uh, film words. But like uh, you've got different filters at different points. There's a couple of pages that I know Leon will appreciate because they're all pink and purple um, and they look very imagey. And they're all spacey and really cool. Uh, my favourite page, the underwater page, has some greens and blues in it. Um, and it's just it's just beautiful. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous comic. And I think even when I've got all four, all of these, I'm because it's a it's only it's a mini series. It's not going to be uh, a, a long running thing. But when I've got all of Shredder in Hell, I think I'm going to end up buying the trade because it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous book. And yeah, it's just it it's kind of nice to actually like that shredder's coming back because i mean i i I enjoy turtles anyway i've been enjoying turtles anyway for you know a a long long time like even without shredder i can enjoy turtles but shredder is you know he's shredder and he's the guy you know (laughs) he's the bad guy so it's nice it's nice to see his return and to have him back in comics pages and to be able to uh see something cool like this, like Shredder's Journey Through Hell, because that's just all kinds of gnarly and all kinds of Greg, I think. (laughs) 
so yeah i've been en- i'll be enjoying that and that is uh shredder in hell number one um have i convinced you guys to read turtles comics yet because i've been trying for so long <laughs> is it a good place to jump on from what <laughs> or, um or do we because like you said we'd have to go back to like where what would you suggest is a good place to jump into a good place to jump in for reading turtles comics now yeah uh you could probably start with shredder in hell read issue 50 because issue 50 is where everything changed and that's where there was a new status quo there's a new status quo after that okay. so you could read issue 50 and then you could read shredder in hell and do it that way i will take that under advisement yes <laughs> and i'll let you know if i get there yeah but i mean obviously the whole thing like from start to finish this this epic that idw have been weaving for the past few years is just it's just excellent and i cannot fault it in any way and between that and the 2012 nickelodeon cartoon like it's been it's been a great few years to be a turtles fan bay films aside (laughs) but yeah there's always something (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's always something, and it's always got Michael Bay's name attached to it, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's all of our comics this time, isn't it? Unless anyone's got anything left that they want to they wanna give a shout-out to or mention. Okay. No. So, <laughs> <laughs> speak now for a hold your peace. Okay, so um, it's uh, pull this time. And um, I guess, Ray, do you want to kick off this time? shake it up a bit <laughs> yeah sure i can do yeah uh, so first thing i've got is cover number five which is a brian michael brian michael bendis book that i think i spoke about issue number one in the past um looks really cool uh and yep that's coming out on the 23rd uh a new one also by uh bendis is called naomi um and that's so I've read the blurb and I've read the very, very short, like two page preview. Um, it's about a fight when when the, when a fight occurred between Superman and Mongol um, and they crashed into a small northwestern town. Naomi begins a quest to uncover the last time a superpowered person visited her home and how it might tie into her own origins and adoption. Um, I picked it up on the strength of the cover and the really cool artwork in this preview where you get to see like this 17 second snapshot of Superman smashing in, like bouncing off uh, a roof of a building, bouncing onto the concrete of the road and then just sodding off to the left side of the panel. And then it shows the aftermath um, of the exact same setting immediately after. A pretty intense way to start the comic, so I'm sold just on the strength of that. Um and then the last one for the 23rd is a new comic by Boom um, called The Avant Gods. And you know how I was talking about Dodge City as like my favorite new sports, sports manga style comic, um, which was about dodgeball. This essentially looks like the same thing from the same publishers, but about basketball and immediately sold. It looks really cool. Um, so, yeah, those those are my picks for the 23rd. Yeah, so my picks for the 23rd. Um, there's a couple on here that scream Leon, and I will come to those in a moment. But um, the first one is Crypt of Shadows. Now, Marvel is celebrating their 80th birthday, their 80th anniversary this year. And for Marvel, Marvel's 80th anniversary, uh, Marvel have gone into the vaults to bring back some classic titles from the Marvel of les- yesteryear. 
Um, so Crypt of Shadows is a horror book. And uh, Marvel have resurrected it. Brought it back from the grave. So for Marvel's 80th anniversary, we've gone into the vaults to bring back some classic titles from the Marvel of yesteryear. But maybe some vaults should stay closed. Something terrifying has broken free and crawled forth from one of the most terrifying corners of Marveldom. The Crypt of Shadows. Prepare for terror. The shadows are deeper than than you think and horrors lurk within. Um, and yeah, I'm just I'm just pretty hyped for a new horror comic. <laughs> so uh, the uh, the cover looks really cool. There's a really nice um, vintage style, retro style cover for it as well that's coming out. And uh, I'm just excited to be reading this. So yeah, that is uh, The Crypt of Shadows. I want to know what's in The Crypt of Shadows. The next one on my list is uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, number one, um, which is um, another Marvel book, and it's the Guardians of the Galaxy uh, reimagined, I guess, uh, or Guardians of the Galaxy under the stewardship of Donny Cates as a writer. So what it says here, who will stand? The universe is on fire. Hundreds of worlds are at war. Never has there been such hatred and division across the cosmos. And in spite of all this, Thanos of Titan is still dead. Or is he? Now more than ever, the cosmos needs the Guardians of the Galaxy. But in the aftermath of the Infinity Wars, who's left to answer the call? Featuring every cosmic superhero in the known universe by the Thanos Wins creative team of Donny Cates and Jeff Shaw. So, you know what that means, don't you? Cosmic Ghost Rider, and there he is, front and centre on the cover. So, um, yeah, the, the main the main reason I've picked this one out is because it's the return of Cos- Cosmic Ghost Rider, and uh, it's got Donny Kate's name on it. So, I will be checking that out. Um, a different Guardians of the Galaxy team, as we said, after the recent Infinity War event in the Marvel Universe, we now have these guys instead. Um... And uh, it's looking pretty good. And um, uh, you can check out the cover and you can see who's there and who's not. Um, Groot, I can see. Uh, Star-Lord's still there. Um, I can see Cosmic Ghost Rider. I can see the Silver Surfer. So, yeah, it's looking pretty good. Um, and the last one, well, the, la- the last two on the list. So, I've got what, these are the two Leon books. So, Buffy the Vampire Slayer number one. Which, (laughs) this is going back to the beginning. This is a reimagining of Buffy in modern times. Under the guidance of Josh Whedon. Josh Whedon even, sorry. Um, So, it says here, Go back to the beginning as the critically acclaimed pop culture phenomenon, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, is reimagined under the guidance of series creator Josh Whedon. This is the Buffy Summers you know who wants every average teenager who wants what every average teenager wants friends at her new school decent grades and to escape her imposed destiny as the next in a long line of vampire slayers tasked with defeating the forces of evil but her world looks a lot more like the one outside your window as Eisner award nominated writer Jordi Belair of Redlands and Russ Manning mm. um and um, Russ Manning award winner Dan Mora uh, from Saban's Go Go Power Rangers, uh, brings Buffy into a new era with new challenges, new friends, and a few enemies you might already recognise. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. As the gang faces brand new big bads, and the threat lurking beneath the perfectly manicured exterior of Stunnydale High uh, confirms what every teenager has always known: high school truly is hell. 
and um the cover that i'm looking at is uh all kind of neon pink and black and green and yellow and it's got buffy wearing um pretty modern fashion holding an iphone and a steak a smartphone and a steak so what? Yeah. Uh, a, a steak a wooden steak okay. yeah 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 not an actual steak yeah she's she's just she's just waving this cut of meat around you know that's how they kill vampires now with beef so yeah no she's uh she has a wooden steak in her hand so yeah it's pretty cool um and uh, i'll check it out yeah i i i'm trying to, i'm trying to get leon back on the monthlies so uh <laughs> I was tempted to put this on my list, but I figured there's always a Buffy comic out there, so I don't know how to differentiate yeah. it from all the rest. This but, one's, um, this one's you... different. <laughs> is it? Who, who did you say the writer was? Uh, the writer is Jordi Belair. Jordi Belair, was, Jordi yes. Belair yes. yes. So that's that's already a plus point. So, yeah. Yeah. Keep an eye out. Yeah, I'm. I'm. If I can get a copy of it, I'll grab a copy of it. But I have been informed by the internet that um, it sold out before it's been published. Oh, okay. So I don't know whether that means I, I'm not sure how that works with comics, whether they can't print enough to keep up with demand and it's already on everyone's pull list or something, or that uh, the amount of orders that every comic book store has put in has already exceeded the amount of, that have got printed. I don't know. I'm not sure. But yeah, wild people need Buffy in these trying times. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the next one, uh, Blossoms Triple Six Number One, which I think I. I, I I was there was whispers about this last year as a new Archie horror book in the line of Archie horrors that I have been enjoying and will continue to enjoy as long as they keep printing them I'll keep reading them uh, <laughs> and uh, in case you haven't already guessed from the title Cheryl and Jason Blossom seem like the wealthy popular and likable twins uh, likable teens we know and love but in this world they harbour a deep dark secret one of them is the Antichrist <laughs> <laughs> of course it is that, that's just part of the course in, uh, <laughs> well i i could i can always, i could say that cheryl is definitely the antichrist but yeah <laughs> both want the title and no one in riverdale is safe so antichrist murder teens there you go i'm down with that yeah i'm down with that <laughs> that's pick- a good that's a great title on its own. <laughs> Antichrist Murder Teens. No, it's just called Blossoms Triple Six. But yeah, I'm uh, I'm in for that, definitely. And there's some really nice alt covers for it as well. Uh, there's a, a, a really nice Francovilla one, uh, which if I can get the Francovilla one, I want the Francovilla one. I always want the Francovilla one. So That makes sense. Yeah. Huh. Um. And uh, that brings us on to the 30th of January. So, Ray, what you got? Right, so keeping it simple this time, this is all stuff that we've talked about in the past. On the 30th, we've got Ms. Marvel, number 37. We've got Ice Cream Man, number 9. And I might be wrong with this one, but we've also got Life is Strange, number 3. Um, but I'll have to verify that. Um, and then also we've got the trade paperback releases for Shanghai Red, volume number 1, and Relay, volume number 1. And if you want... Um, reasons to be reading any of those check our check our past episodes we've talked about all of those some, at some point by relay it's a trip yeah um on mine i've got for the 30th of the first it's detective comics number 997 as we continue in the run-up to issue a thousand uh and uh someone is screwing with bruce wayne's head but who we don't know um, that number just stresses me out, man. 
Well, yeah. I mean, Detective Comics is Detective Comics. It's yeah. it's all self-contained arcs. It's not um it's not really as I mean, if you know your Batman lore, you know your Batman lore. But it's not its not really as um, dependent on you having read all of it yeah. as like, the current Tom King run would be, for example. Um, because... It's still brutal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like with Detective Comics, what they do is they just publish like a Batman story over like however many issues it takes to tell that story. And then that's that, and then they'll start the next thing with a new creative team kind of thing usually. So, yeah. Uh, Detective Comics is is easier to dip into if you get in at the start of an arc. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So that's why there's nine nine hundred ninety seven of them. <laughs> um, also because it's been going since the dawn of DC Comics. Yeah, much, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, I'm I'm hyped for issue a thousand, which is why that's on the list. Uh, I had Ice Cream Man number nine on my list, which raided two, uh, because we love ice cream on this cast and. <laughs> we love horror and we love ice cream man because it's both uh and the other one i've got is another one of those marvel titles that they're reviving called journey into unknown worlds and this is another one of those like weird talesy type things slash um like uh horror well kind of horror sci-fi type things uh in celebration of marvel's 80th anniversary uh da 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 and comic books that captivated hearts and minds across generations join us for two scintillating sci-fi stories the first an extraterrestrial adventure by Cullen Bunn the likes of which we haven't the likes of which haven't been seen in this or any other decade and the second a tale of terror by Clay McLeod chap by Clay McLeod Chapman that could take place in your very own backyard the secrets of the universe lie waiting to be discovered true believers on a journey to unknown worlds and uh i'm picking that up because a it's called journey to unknown worlds b it's uh like a sci-fi pulp anthology thing type thing that i'm you know i like that kind of stuff and d uh a b and c it's got cullen bun's name attached to it so yeah i'm down with that um and that finishes the pull list so, I guess that closes us out. Unless Leon, you got anything you wanna you wanna bring up that you're gonna be grabbing over the next couple of weeks? Anything you're gonna read? Um, there's there's things like Life is Strange Three, which is already been on Rahul's list, but uh, I'm generally trying to look back. Um, but there's the, the Buffy and the Blossom one off yours. I'll probably check out as well. But I'm try, I'm looking further back the field to try and sweep up some of the things we missed. Yeah. Anything, anything that's kind of like on your hit list that you're currently, currently hunting down from. Uh, there's a few, but I'll leave them as uh, surprises for the next episode. So there's a couple that I'm not sure if I'm going to talk about or not. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So that has been Ace Comicals episode number fifty-four, and you can find us at www.acecomicals.com, which is kind of the hub for everything we do. We have an Instagram where we are Ace Comicals. You can find us on Facebook under Ace Comicals. We are on Twitter under at Ace Comicals. Um, you can send us your um, silly questions, silly scenarios, uh, anything you want, and we will try to answer it on the next show. Um, you can find us to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Pocketcast, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Castro. Uh, you can email us directly at acecomicals at gmail.com 
or I guess you can DM us or get in touch with us on Twitter. Just join the conversation. If you like something that we've talked about, let us know. Or if you want us to talk about something specific, tell us. Bring it to our attention. Um, you can find me on Twitter under at Bato. Ray, where can we find you? On Twitter at Monke, so that's at M-O-O-N-K-E-H. And Leon, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Leon Everett. That has been Ace Comicals episode number 54. So that is Ace Comicals over and out.